I want to have a Bible this morning, so even if you've never opened a Bible in your life, I want you to have one. So, uh, Dave, we're going to, yeah, come on down. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we have Bibles coming down the aisle for you, okay? Very good, very good, very good. Yeah, raise your hand high. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're in big trouble, okay? All right. Look at the person next to you. If they don't have a Bible yet, tell them to raise their hand and give them a dirty look. I want you to have a Bible. <laughs> I'm not going to have the verses on the screen today because I, wa- I want to show you a little bit about how Mark lays out some things here. When you get a Bible, everyone got one? Oh, we got down in the middle here. Are we out of Bibles? Do-do-do. Everyone? Right here. Anyone else? Way over here. Got a couple who don't have Bibles. Keep raising them. I'm going to start preaching, okay? Um, <laughs> now, I want you to mark, turn to Mark 2. Now, most of those Bibles, that'd be page 1553, most of them. If yours isn't right, look on the table of contents. Mark 2, and we're going to talk about the conflicts of Jesus. And today's sermon, for some of you, I'm going to be up front, is going to be boring, all right? Now, for some of you, you're going to wish, boy, I wish he preached like this more often. So if you're one of those that's bored, enjoy your nap. I'll wake you up when we get to the end. Okay. In her book, The Liars Club, Mary Carr tells of a Texas uncle who remained, un- who remained married to his wife but did not speak to her for 40 years after a fight over how much money she spent on sugar. He was so mad that he took out a lumber saw and sawed the house exactly in half And he nailed up planks to cover the exposed sides of the two halves of the house and moved one of the halves behind some pine trees on the property they had, the same acre of ground they had. And the husband and wife lived out the rest of their days in separate half houses because she spent too much money on sugar. I do hope they had two bathrooms. Um, I once saw a cartoon with the caption, A Bad Sign. And there's a picture of a church with a marquee out front proudly announcing... 213 days without a church split. Conflicts are just everywhere, and they're part of life. Every church in the New Testament had conflict, and every letter in the New Testament deals with conflict of some kind. Every movie you watch, every novel you read is going to have some kind of conflict. Now, last week, we talked about the tests and the temptations that Jesus encountered, and that's a theme that runs all through Mark's gospel. And one of those tests, of course, is conflict. He faced opposition from his enemies. And one of the ways we are tested in our walk with Christ is in conflict. If you're being criticized and questioned and gossiped about, it's hard to keep going. Now, would Jesus be opposed today if he lived in the 21st century? Absolutely. Um, And I can get pretty discouraged when I see how our culture has grown increasingly not only unchristian, but anti-Christian. It seemed like our culture is turning its back on the very foundation on which this country was formed. And I'm tempted to get angry, and it's a test of my faith. On the news last week was a story about a teacher who got fired because he gave a Bible to a student. I just don't get that. You know, go ahead and give him a condom, but don't you dare give him the Bible. Is there something wrong with that picture? And this should not surprise us. I get that because our Lord faced conflict on almost every front, and he predicted the same for his followers. So today we're in Mark 2 that all of you have turned to now. And in chapter 2, every incident contains a conflict. And Jesus is questioned and challenged at every turn. First of all, in our text, which we'll read in just a little bit. But then in chapter 2, verse 16, 
I can't read all this, but I'm just going to skip around here. Uh, this is the calling of Levi. And then verse 16, when the teachers of the law who, who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds to that criticism. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of your Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus responds to that criticism. Then down verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Everything he does in this chapter is questioned. Okay, criticized. And then in chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Skip down to verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Every section is a conflict scene. And then it culminates in verse 6 here of chapter 3 with the religious leaders wanting to destroy him. Now these events probably did not happen consecutively in Jesus' life. What I want you to see here, this is an example where the gospel writer has grouped together a series of events in Jesus' life, all with a common denominator. And the common denominator in each one of these accounts is conflict to show the different ways that Jesus faced opposition. Now the same thing happens in chapter 1, where a series of events are grouped together with a common denominator. So go back to chapter 1, and we're going to look at this, and I'm going to see if you can figure out what is the theme in chapter 1, starting with verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now this is right after Jesus' baptism and temptation we talked about last week. And what's that show about Jesus? Let's go on, verse 22. Well, well, yeah, let's go on verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then he cast out an evil spirit, and then down in verse 27. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. Next he heals Simon's mother-in-law, and then down in verse 34. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. You see the common theme here. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing Mark wants us to know about Jesus is his authority and his power. Verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left and he was cured. Now, that's Jesus' authority over one of the most dreaded disease of that day. So there's two main themes in these first two chapters. His first theme is the authority of Jesus, here in chapter 1 especially. The authority to call disciples to come follow him. The authority to heal. The authority to cast out demons. He has authority in his teaching. So that's his first theme. The second theme that he wants us to hear about are the conflicts of Jesus. Conflict over Sabbath regulations. Conflict over fasting. Conflict over healing. And then our text is the hinge text right in between these two sections and brings the two themes together of both conflict and authority. Now, 
We're going to chart it out this way. Okay. I just love, I love my little pen here. Aha, there we go. Okay, chapter 1 starts with the authority to call disciples. Then he taught with authority. Then authority to drive out spirits. Authority to heal. Authority over leprosy. Then our text is the authority to forgive sins and conflict. Authority and conflict brought together. And then he goes on to conflict over even sinners. Conflict over fasting. Conflict picking grain. Conflict over the Sabbath healing. And so the, our text is actually the hinge and the apex of these two sections on authority and conflict. Isn't that cool? Now, some of you are bored to tears. I know, I know. Go ahead, go back to sleep. It's all right. Some of you think, this is really cool because you can see how Mark's laid it out and what he's trying to do. So in our text, we have both the authority and conflict of Jesus. His authority forgives sins and the resistance. So turn to chapter 2, Mark 1. Mark 2, Mark 2, verse 1. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Let's stop there. Last week, I mentioned that Jesus had problems with the disciples, more so in Mark than any other gospel writer. The disciples are dull and slow to understand, just, some, just sometimes just stupid. He also had problems with the enemies that opposed him. But he, there's another group in Mark that is very important. And that's the crowds. Verse 2, so many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door. Back in chapter 1, news about him spread quickly through the whole region. And very early in his ministry, Jesus was popular. And yet, you'll probably notice, Jesus is not comfortable with popularity. Back in chapter 1, Jesus healed the leper and sent him away and said, don't tell anyone. And then he told the demons to be quiet about his identity. He didn't, like, he didn't want this popularity. And I have two questions when I see that. My first question is, how do you keep that quiet? How do you keep what Jesus is doing quiet? How do you respond to someone when you're walking down the street and they say to you, hey, Fred, what happened to your leprosy? I mean, what do you say? How do you keep that quiet? Leprosy isn't something that just goes away. Or someone who's been raised from the dead and he gets asked, didn't we just have your funeral last Tuesday? Shh, don't tell anyone. You know, how do you keep that quiet? Of course they couldn't. So news spread everywhere, and Jesus is very popular. Here's my second question then. Why does Jesus want to keep it quiet? Why not tell everyone? The Messiah is here. The kingdom is, is at hand. And people are crowding around him, but he doesn't really like this popularity. Um, now, I like to be popular. I like it when people like me. Don't you like it when people like you? Popular. Remember Wicked? Great song. Anyway, part of the... <laughs> Anyway, part of the reason Jesus is not big on popularity, I think, is just the nature of people, because I believe the crowds represent shallow followers. As long as Jesus can dazzle them and heal them and feed them and entertain them, there'll be, they'll be crowds. As long as he tells them what they want to hear and does good things for them, they'll follow him. And this is why Jesus tells everyone to be quiet. He doesn't want that kind of followership, that shallow following. I read about a church in Lawrence, Kansas, and the church building was located across the street from a theater where Marilyn Manson was scheduled to perform. Now, Manson, uh, some of you might remember, once billed himself as the Antichrist superstar. And we'll put a picture of him. Kind of cute, isn't he? Uh, what's, instead of protesting the event, this church right across the street 
decided that while people were laying in line for concerts, they were going to serenade them. So they had their worship band play music for them and you know, give them some nice music to listen to while people waited in line for, for an hour. And then also they gave away hundreds of cans of cold soda to those who were standing in line. They said, you know, we thought you might be thirsty. Now, how do you think the crowds reacted? They loved it. Concert goers said things like, well, this is the kind of thing Christians ought to be doing. This is what the church should be about. And that's kind of like with Jesus and the crowds. When Jesus did good things for the people, you know, the healings and the miracles and the food, crowds loved it. Man, this is the kind of thing the Messiah should be doing. Even fans of Marilyn Manson would agree. And what Jesus is doing is good. And this church in Lawrence is good, good, doing good things. And we should be helping people. And yet, there's no commitment made by the crowds. No real changes. As long as they received stuff, they were okay. But when you ask for a commitment or sacrifice, the crowds, they're gone. Now, just because crowds are fickle and uncommitted doesn't mean Jesus neglects them. He still teaches and preaches to them. He heals and feeds and does good things for them. He loves them. He's planting seeds. And, and I'm guessing some of the people in those crowds eventually did become committed followers. And we should applaud the church in Lawrence, Kansas for reaching out to the masses just like Jesus did. They're planting seeds. And one of our goals as a church this year, and we'll talk about it next week more at the annual meeting, we want to be more community involved, more of a servant congregation. We want to raise our love quotient um, so people can see that uh, we care. Okay, going on, verse 3. I won't preach that long <laughs> on all these. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let's stop there. Okay, Jesus is interrupted by these four guys carrying their friend uh, on a mat. They can't get in the door, so they rip open the roof. It's a flat Palestinian roof, not like our roofs today. And because of their love for this paralyzed man and their faith that Jesus can help him, they will not be dissuaded from getting him to Jesus. And they literally tear off a roof. Which I think begs the question, how determined are we to get our friends to Jesus for healing? Would you raise a roof to get someone to Jesus? If not, we may have the wrong view of Jesus. We may be just one of the crowds. And then Jesus says something totally unexpected, your sins are forgiven. You ever go to the doctor and you're sick and the doc says, well, you're forgiven of your sins. We just, we just don't do that, okay? We know diseases are caused by viruses and bacteria. You know, we can kind of get to the core of what's, what's wrong. And we are convinced that health results from eating right and exercising and taking the right medicine that three out of four doctors recommend. And we get this idea that there's fixed boundaries between mind, body, and soul. And... And our relationship to God has really nothing to do with our physical health. And Jesus really reminds us here that sin and illnesses are interrelated. And illness is ultimately the result of sin in this world, and sometimes it's a result of sin in our lives. And just taking a pill or having surgery doesn't mean some, someone is now fully healthy. In that culture, illness and sin were very directly connected very often in their minds, probably too much, but our culture has gone way the opposite and made no connection between the two. And we forget that we are holistic beings. We are body, mind, and soul. We're interconnected, and scientific solutions by themselves will not solve all the problems of sickness and suffering. They cannot make us totally healthy. 
Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. The word save in the New Testament carries the idea of both spiritual and physical healing. So when Jesus heals this sickness, he's also conquering sin. Now we don't know if he, this man had a specific sin he'd committed. It doesn't say, all we know, there's a connection between sin and sickness. Verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Jesus reads their mind. I'd love to read your mind right now. Uh, maybe I wouldn't like to. Anyway, maybe not. Anyway, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has, what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins by healing the man, and it provokes conflict. Conflict and authority brought together. There are three main groups during Jesus' ministry. The disciples, who I'd call the stumbling followers, they try to follow, but they're making mistakes. The crowds, who are the shallow followers, they follow Jesus when they get what they want. And then the religious leaders, who are representing open opposition. If you lived in the time of Jesus, which one of those three groups would you be? Would you be a stumbling disciple, a fickle follower, or openly opposed? If I'm honest, and it bugs me to say this, I think I might have been one of the opposition. These teachers have theological, biblical reasons for opposing Jesus. They know the Bible. And when they ask who has authority to forgive sins but God alone, they were right. Only God can forgive sins. In the Old Testament prophecies, believe it or not, even the Messiah would not have authority to forgive sins. That was only for God. And so the conclusion had to be Jesus is blaspheming. So when they ask, who can forgive sins but God alone, they are correct. They just didn't know that Jesus was God. And he did have authority to forgive sins. The crowds, on the other hand, say, hey, we don't care what the Bible says. We like this guy, and he feeds us, and he's funny, and he makes us feel good. You know, the shallow followers. The crowds were the majority, and I still think that's the case today. The crowds are the majority. There are people who talk about God and believe in God and talk about prayer and talk about faith, and they may attend church once in a while, and they're nice to people, but they don't really commit to his will and his kingdom and the advancement of his church. They're not really interested in knowing this God and being a true disciple, and sometimes I have more respect for the opposite opposition than for the shallow masses because the opposition is at least thinking so Jesus authority stirs up conflict and that's not changed today some people will not acknowledge his authority as the son of God and who can forgive sins yeah Jesus was a good teacher and nice man but he wasn't God and they will oppose him and anyone who thinks that he is God and then some people will like Jesus, you know, like what he can give them, and they'll acknowledge his authority, but will not submit to his authority. Will not submit, like the crowds. They like Jesus, but they're not really going to follow him. They're not going to make him the authority for their lives. Jesus is a threat to the status quo. He was then, and he still is today. And he's a threat to the status quo in my life. If he becomes my authority, I'm going to have to do what he says. 
not just what I want to do. I'm going to have to change my ways. I no longer call the shots, and that's a threat. So Jesus calls us to both acknowledge him and submit to him. Now, the end of the whole section on conflict, verse, chapter 3, verse 6, it escalates to the point of no return, and the Pharisees and the Herodians went out thinking how they might kill Jesus, and it ends up, as we all know, in the crucifixion, and the crowds disappear. So which one are you? I trust you're not part of the open opposition. But are you like the crowds? You like Jesus, you like him at funerals and weddings and times of crisis and maybe Easter and Christmas and when you can make it on Sunday morning, but you're not going to follow him to the cross. You're not going to give up anything. Or are you a disciple trying to follow him, stumbling along the way and making mistakes like these 12 did, but you're acknowledging and submitting to his authority for your life. You'll stumble if you become a disciple. I mean, you'll make mistakes, and you'll not understand everything, again, like the 12. But I want you to encourage you to make a decision that I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart and my mind and soul and strength, and I won't disappear when the road gets tough because I know that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and I will follow him to the ends of the earth, and I will follow him even when I don't feel like it because he is the only way to life. Become a disciple, a follower. Let's pray. Lord, I want to follow you, even though I stumble. And I don't want to be one of those religious leaders that's stuck in tradition and they can't see the way of Christ. I don't want to be one of the majority, you know, where I'm there just for the good stuff. Lord, deep down, I think every one of us knows you are the way. And I pray that as a church, we will show your way to this community and to this world. Lord, this world needs you more than ever before. Our neighbors need you. And we pray that your will will be done in our lives and in this church and in this world. It's in Jesus we pray.